This is the Function Podcast about art and engineering, brought to you by day jobs and by kitchen tables, where the real work happens. Welcome back to another episode of Function. I'm your host, Tom. And I'm Micah. Today we're talking about art and engineering. So what have you been drawing lately, Tom? I've been using my iPad Pro. So I've gone digital again. I'm using um, an app called Paper by 53. And it is amazing. Uh, I can start with a photo and draw over it. And then uh, I get a nice outline that's kind of like a black pen. That's what I use usually. And a white background. And then I watercolor inside the lines. And, um, and unlike real watercoloring, I can erase uh, which I really need. That that is a uh, liability of real watercolors, but um, you're also using actual real paper. Paper, as well. yeah. Paper, paper. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I was looking at paper because we were talking about paper last time, and so I complained that I couldn't find any good engineering paper. So I went, I went through my stack yeah. of engineering pads, and I thought, okay, I got to get to the bottom of this. What's what's wrong with my paper? How, what did you find? What what um, did you have a top pick for your a tops yeah. pick? Well, uh, <laughs> tops is one of the brands. Tops yeah, is a brand, but yeah. Um, like what, what was I was all ready to be people? mad about tops because they're kind of the Johnny come lately. You know, they're they're probably I don't know how long they've been in business. It must be it can't have been more than twenty or thirty years. Uh, I think when I started, I used National, and I just remember it differently. I remember it being. Uh, easier to get black marks on with a number two pencil. It, was, it seemed darker. Like mm-hmm. I could photocopy it and it would be really good in that it could pick out the pencil lines accurately if you set the copier right somewhere. And now it seems it's all sort of shiny and, and uh, it's hard to, hard to get the pencils to stand out. And so, so, so the surface is actually, the texture of the surface seems different than what you recall from... Well, I don't know. It was a long time ago when I did most of my engineering pad engineering before the days of computers. And I'd also say that photocopiers are quite a bit different now. They than, are. Than, yeah. So there's a, more variables. Mm, yeah. But yeah. And I'm different still, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and I'm also out of practice um, due to the digital tools. Right. And so I, I started on... Um, the national and I, I tried different pencils on it. And I did find that if you have a good collection of pencils, you can usually find one that works on just about any, any paper. The, the key to enjoying your paper is to try different pencils until you find the one you like. Yeah. It might not be the same pencil for the four different right. pads you're using. So well, you match them up. Well, they'll all work well with, with a pencil that leaves too much graphite on the page. So the softer you go, the darker and nicer it flows, and and that's great. And some of them, some of the papers can handle a harder pencil better than others. Mm-hmm. I think is the the bottom line of it. But then it's smearier for those darker pencils. It is and, smeary. And so there's the trade-offs you always have to balance for how dark you want your line on the paper and how. If you ever have to transport it, what happens? Transport? Oh, you like know, to move it from it, one place to another? Yeah, like if it, even in a file folder, you know, it, it, there's a little abrasion that happens and it 
if it's a real soft line, um, it can it can make your engineering look less precise. Well, I never had a problem with anything looking precise because I don't use a ruler. Okay. Um, that's why I became an analog engineer. I started off uh, in engineering designing digital circuits, and then they found out I like to draw schematics without a ruler. And so I needed to become an analog engineer because the digital guys all use rulers and they use logic templates. You remember those green oh. the, those green plastic things oh, where yeah. you would draw the outline of a NAND gate or whatever it was that you were drawing? Yeah, that that's the um yeah, they had these templates and they, you'd use a T square to get your template to be horizontal and, and tape down your paper and um make a drawing. Tape down, that's serious. Well, yeah, you have to use drafting tape yeah. to keep from ripping the paper. And you have to take it off in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, because even I have, um, I used to use the drafting dots, which are like little tiny round, like three quarter inch round stickers of the drafting tape. So you don't have to have mm. that big long edge. But really, I mean, it's a pretty short window before that stuff is just permanently attached. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you have to go at it with a scraper. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think every good drafting table has got like some layers of the way people used to work on it. And scratches. Evidence of trying to remove oh. some of that. Mmm, trying too hard. Yeah, drafting tables. I remember when everybody got rid of their drafting tables. And now I, I see them and admire them and I wonder why I didn't like pick up a really good one. And then I remember how big they are. They are large. They're really big. So I used to work, yeah, on the D-sized sheets. And I used something more like, um, well, they called it vellum. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was the white stuff with the blue lines and it had a big title block in it. And I found some, uh, I, I have a pad of, is that Bienfang? Is that how you say that? I suppose. Uh, gridded paper. Uh, and I got 10 to the 10 inch cross section which is not the canonical engineering pad. Engineering pads are five boxes to the inch, five minor boxes, and then they have inch boxes, and they're drawn. The, all the ink is on the uh, back of the page. When you draw on them, you can see the ink through the translucency of the page, uh, and that's what guides the, the picture so that you can freehand lines or draw graphs or whatever and make them reasonably accurate. Yeah, that was my dad's favorite was the um, the clear print 10 by 10 grid vellum paper that he's, he still uses it. It's, his, it's yeah. his top pick. Well, you can still get that that in, in the um, at the regular art supply store. That Bienfang stuff is, is pretty nice, and it's smoother and better paper, and it costs about double what regular engineering paper costs. I think it's about 10 cents a sheet as mm -hmm. opposed to roughly five to seven cents a sheet for the um, regular engineering paper. Actually, I think it's a little more than that. I think it's about 14 cents a sheet is what it comes down to. What did I pay? It has a sticker on it. It has a price tag because I went to an actual store where I checked out and um, see if I can find it. Here it is, $7.93 for 100 sheets at Riley Street. And I got it on sale. And so I, because uh, I went a day, they happened to have a sale, and I paid, 
I think 20% less. And I didn't even know until I, I checked out that they were having a sale that day, but I got lucky. And with the sale price, it was less than on Amazon, where it's just over $7 for 50 sheets. Most of the, my, my normal sort of uh, way to buy engineering paper is 100 sheets. But uh, well, I couldn't find this in 100. I, I'd, I'd also say that we're really lucky to have a place like Riley Street here locally that has a pretty great selection of tools for, I mean, there's not a lot of storage you can just walk into and get your engineering grid paper. So it's kind right. of handy that we've got that here in town. We happen to have that. And I think it, it it's, there's a lot of things like that that I think are the legacy actually of having uh, cartoonists in town. <laughs> Because we used to have Charles Schultz who drew uh, peanuts here, and if you uh, and there was a few other cartoonists in town actually, and they were very particular about their supplies, and so they would, like, it would be a major emergency if they run out of something that a cartoon, <laughs> a famous cartoonist needed, and so they were very careful with their inventory. Yeah, and then also for years and years, there's been lots of um, industry and innovators here as well. So every you know, every person gets eventually seems to get pretty particular about what they're using. You know, like I was saying, my dad with his clear print paper and his Pentel P203 mm. mechanical pencil, like you can't create without those things there. Otherwise, it's this pencil keeps breaking because, um, like on the tops paper, um, it's kind of got a bit of a rough surface, and if you use a really fine mechanical pencil it just snap snaps it all the time yes so if you use a sharp point it's, it's probably more sensitive yeah because i normally use a lead holder on it mm. and i wonder if back when i was using it before i was using wooden pencils i think i was so that may have something to do with it also i forget what kind i used to use it was a long time ago it was uh, the one that was there <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of them. They were handy. You got them out of office supplies. We used to have two people work full-time in the office supplies section, and they had a whole store there, and and you could get all kinds of things, and they would even have suggestions for what you might want. Uh, and you would sign things out, and it would get, I guess, billed to your department. And then, of course, with computerization, we got rid of those people and replaced them with an IT department with about 50 people in it, probably <laughs> <laughs> spread all over the world. So um, it's probably actually much less efficient in some ways, but uh, engineering productivity isn't one of them because you can actually draw a lot faster on a computer now because uh, you can cut and paste like crazy. Yeah. Uh, we used to have to go to the copier and, and uh, <laughs> cut and paste with, with scissors and, and uh, manual paste up. Paste, yeah. I usually use tape. But the copier, yeah, the copier used to be uh, uh, an engineering tool. So let's see, what other paper did I look at? I looked at the uh, Statler and the National and the Tops. And I tried them all, and and the thing that bothers me about them now, well, is the, actually the registration of the ink between the top and the bottom. Hmm. Because none of them had particularly good front-to-back registration. So you would look at them, and, and one was often an angle. Uh, so if you followed the lines on the back, they didn't line up to the lines on the front as you went 
up the page, they got worse. Uh, so it was well aligned at the bottom of the page. So these are printed on both sides? Yeah, because they have a little format, a little drawing format around the front and then uh, dark lines on the back. Mm. And, and uh, the, other, the other problem with um, some of them, I think it was, which one? The tops. Yeah, I wanted to, for some reason I don't like tops. Maybe I don't like the name. I think that's the problem. The format on the front doesn't have enough room at the top where I, I would put my name and a page number and what I was working on at the top. And then the one on the bottom is just a margin. Uh, where I wouldn't write anything. And so I want that one to be small and I want the one on the top to be slightly larger. And so that the newer papers don't seem to understand that. They, they, they don't have like a title, a proper title block area. Yeah, it doesn't look like a title block. It looks like they just think that that's more margin and they probably don't remember why it has little dividing lines across the top. But um, they're there for tradition. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, they're there, but they're in the wrong place. So and there was always some variation between pads and how they were registered, but they seem pretty consistently off now. Um, and that's, that's annoying. So, so what I do is I make my own paper. And what are you using to make your own paper? Printer. But are you? A PDF. I use whatever's in the printer. Okay. Um, I haven't, I haven't gone to well, sometimes I've used different paper, but not for engineering paper yet. So it's that white stuff that... It's uh, like copy bond paper. Well, I don't, I don't know if the word bond appears on it anywhere. Is it, is it laser printer, inkjet printer? What, kind of, what are you printing with? Um, it's a, I think it's a laser printer. I, we have these new printers uh, that are very fast, so they must be laser printers. And they're very good, and they print on both sides. Oh. I think they do it without flipping the paper also. I think it just spits out. That makes it faster. Double-sided. Yeah, it spits the stuff right out. And they're wonderful printers, and they also are really good scanners. Yeah, they have a nice user interface, unlike the old scanning printers that were terrible. Uh, the hard part is the keyboard, and also how they're configured, and whether or not you have to type in a password to send an email somewhere, which was very annoying because... Well, one reason was because my password had characters in it that weren't on their keyboard. Oh. Uh, and that made it kind of it was sort of a usability issue right, there. exactly. Although I think if I had held the, the alt key or whatever down enough times, it would have found the characters I was looking for. But I think I got stuck a couple of times on that. Yeah, my dad had made his own engineering paper um, a few years ago. But first being the Ron that he is, he wrote it in raw postscript and just, you know, copied it over to the PostScript printer. And then he would change, depending on what he was working on, the size or, or what text blocks he needed. Yeah. So, PostScript is a great language. I, I know a guy, uh, let's see, Damien Conway talked about programming in PostScript. And I, was it him or somebody else that wrote a program that would compute the digits of pi in PostScript? <laughs> and it would print out one digit per page. <laughs> so it took like a ream of, of paper to get through, you know, like a 500 digits of pi or whatever. It would, it would crash at some point because it ran out of something or other, uh, the math capabilities or stack size or memory or whatever right. it was. Postscript is nice. PDF, you can write in PDF as well. 
the PDF format is a lot like PostScript, and most people don't know that you can just type that in. Also, oh yeah, I haven't I haven't tried to do raw PDF. Yeah, so it's I fine. I guess that's sort of another Adobe thing, so it's probably. Yeah, it's a lot like PostScript, except it has one. Um, the pages are self-contained in PostScript. In order to print something, you have to load the entire file before the printing can start. Yeah. Because the, uh, something on the last line of the PostScript file could change the first page. Uh, there's no boundary. Uh, there's no sort of checkpoints. And in PDF, they made it a page at a time. And that was needed for the web so that when you were loading a document, you didn't have to load the whole document before you could see the first page. Yeah, because some of those are pretty long. Or you could have progressive PDF or whatever. There may have been a progressive postscript at some point, but they ended up with PDF. And the PDFs were, let's see, there was a book that they published with the spec in it. And it had it has checksums in it, uh, which are annoying to have to, you wouldn't want to calculate them by hand. Mm -hmm. um, you can leave them out, and then the, the reader will complain and say, hey, your file is corrupt because the checksum doesn't match. But it'll still it'll display it, and it works fine. Yeah, <laughs> It's just a pop-up window you have to ignore. So if you just wanted to print something, it's actually a nice little language. It's, it's very similar to PostScript. Well, I'm going to have to check it out because I spent a lot of time in PostScript, and I don't, I don't do much with it anymore. But we had, we had one project that was, we did our um, panels for our... Uh, Preamps. All that artwork is done in raw PostScript. Oh my! Because we wanted the dials to be, you know, markings exactly would match up with the rotation of the pots. And if we change something, we could change it easily. But we found a really weird thing that every single font, every PostScript font, the numeral one is slightly below the bounding box of the character. So if you make the number 10, which you put on dials a lot, yeah. it look like they're the different. The, why we did it is because putting 10 like in any, you know, illustrator or something, floating in space looks like you have two um, numerals of different font sizes. I've seen that before. Yeah, and it's... And yeah, it's, it's very annoying. And it's for readability and text. So the, the one is a little bit lower than the baseline of all the other letters, it supposedly improves readability, but it's really awful when you're making a dial. Yeah. So we did it. So we found the centers of thing. Anyway, it was it was. You nuts. need a front panel font. <laughs> right. I probably know where I can get one. If you if you make a font yourself, mm -hmm. it's a lot of work. It is. Turns only, out. <laughs> I've only got seven letters of the font I'm working on done. But oh, you're working on a font. Yeah. Are you using any tools? Um, I am using an ancient tool. I have Type Tool 3. Hmm. I don't know uh, that one. It's, uh, it's cheap. It's like 99 bucks or something. Hmm. Compared to what all the other font specialty programs are. Several hundred or more dollars. And that's yes, not my are. primary thing that I do. But I made our logo for our company. You know, the seven letters of Alembic are... Now I have as a font, so I can scale it and, you know, put it all over the place. You know, you can remember those old HP documents where every time HP was in the text, it had their little logo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a font. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, just a character, a character in a font. Yeah. yeah. So, so I 
mm -hmm. their manuals. Yeah, we still have that. Uh, several companies later, uh, <laughs> it went through HP. And then the Agilent font was a real pain because it has this little flat, is what I called it. Um, <laughs> and I can say that now that I don't work for them anymore. Uh, it's a bunch of little circles, and they had a specific drawing and a set of dimensions for them and all that. And we had a font for that. That was hard to draw. And it's weird because a lot of programs aren't really expecting you to have a huge character. Right. Yeah, so you're, I mean, the kerning and right. all of your... Yeah, it's hard to get that to actually work. Yeah. And, and now we have, uh, now I work at Keysight Technologies. That's the day job that is um, paying the bills. And the lettering on that is really interesting. And I helped someone digitize it uh, who needed it for a CAD tool that had its own font system in it that wasn't anyone else's. And the actual coordinates of the letters are slightly slanted, which you wouldn't notice. If you just look at it, you would say that's straight. But if you zoom way in, it's slightly slanted. And it won't look right unless it's slightly slanted. Well, it won't meet our corporate standard. And there you have go. the standards police come out and, <laughs> and desist you. We got all those little points to be nice little vectors and to behave themselves. And I'm sure you have the same problem with the Alembic font, except worse, because are there any straight lines in it? There is not a single straight line <laughs> in it. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's like based on some 13th century, you know, handwritten. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's not a font. It was scribed. Lettering. Lettering. Yes. So, um, but yeah, and then it, and it's evolved over the years too, you know. Our corporate standards um, have changed because the M and the C are a lot different than the original logo for the company. It was it was very hard for people to read with those old type of Gothic fonts. They look the C has got a connecting from the top to the bottom, so it looks like a D in reverse or an A. People thought it they kind of sounded it out. They might get Alembia, hmm. but. Um, so we try to make it a little more legible so people might be able to find our company, <laughs> purchase our goods, you know. So it helps. It helps. So yeah. but yeah, but it's it's fun and I'm working on D. I, <laughs> that's the next letter I'm working on. Slow going. It's, it's not as easy as you think because no, since it's not. there is no D in it, they all look wrong. So I have I think I just have to do it and just keep going on and make a few more and then try to figure out how I'm going to reference the different flourishes that are on it in the different letters because it just, because they don't exist, they all look wrong. Well, I've, I've been getting into that time period where your letters come from. Uh, I've, I've learned a bit of Middle English and I've, I've been following, uh, I was following a funny guy on Twitter. So being funny on Twitter is a good way to teach people things <laughs> because he tricked me into learning Middle English by tweeting funny things in Middle English. Do you have an example of your inspiration? Um, my inspiration? Yeah, to learn middle, one of his funny Oh, uh, yes. An example would be uh, he likes to take like pop songs and translate them to Middle English. And it's kind of a little game because as he tweets out a line at a time, you see how long it takes you to recognize the song. Okay. 
And I think one of the first ones, uh, we were Rickrolled. So uh, Rick Astley, uh, never going to give you up. Uh, he translated to Middle English and, and did a really nice job. I think you can see some of them on Storify, which is, uh, I think, a service that takes a sequence of tweets and turns it into a story. Mm -hmm. And the guy's name is, we'll have to put this in the show notes, is Chaucer Doth Tweet. You will uh, learn Middle English, including things like the, uh, the special character they use for TH, which is called a thorn. Thorn, yeah. Yeah. So every now I'll have um, sort of a, a thank Thor, it's Thursday, uh, and he does everything with thorns. And so it's, it's a really easy way to sort of learn it, you know, when he talks about something like that, he uses it a lot. So by making a lot of examples in it, then it, you just naturally learn it just from the context of what he's saying, because you can kind of see the, the modern English sort of hidden inside it. And so he, then the little puzzles in Twitter, you know, 100 characters or so, are the perfect size. Because if you sit down with a thick book, you know, you'd never get through it, right? Yeah. It, would, it would be too hard to learn from a I don't know, you pick up a copy of Chaucer or something like that. It's pretty hard to read uh, in one sitting. But a tweet, you can puzzle out. Yeah, you can digest that. And then it's short enough, too, that you can remember it. And then, and then there's some other people that, that, uh, that do Twitter things also in, in it. Because he, I don't know, he's a member of some society of, I don't know, people that teach such things. I think he's a professor somewhere. And uh, let's see, he, he works with, or he, he will retweet other people that have to do, that do things that have to do with Middle English. Like one of the things um, is someone who tweets pictures of the little people in the margins of old books, uh -huh. you know, the, the little illustrations, and there's all kinds of people doing things in there. And so it's actually a really good kind of glimpse into daily life from back then is because you see... Oh, I don't know, people carrying water and, and uh, whatever, farming or whatever they used to do. And other things like unicorns and stuff. But, uh, but next to those, you can see a lot of text because they're sort of in the context of the text. And so that's what got me thinking about your, your, your characters is that you'll be able to, uh, you should be able to get a lot of inspiration from these. And there's a lot of digitized manuscripts online now. There's oh, a lot yeah. of projects going on. To yeah, do and there's a, yeah, I mean, and I've definitely... As a, uh, I wouldn't even say I'm a reformed typophile. I am very fonty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, it, and that all comes from ancient stuff, um, like the format and formal line tools. Did you ever use those? The, like the for, let, letter set rub on letters and oh. The format were the ones that you cut out with an exacto knife and placed on your paste ups, or the form, the formal line. Um, they had a whole bunch. I don't know if it was formal line specifically that was for the circuit board layout, but they're like the crepe paper chart tape, pack. Chart pack, yeah. That was the one I remember. Yeah, uh, so, I never used it, um, but I knew people who did. Yeah. I admired it. So that's from when I was a kid. We had all those around and. When you're an only child and your parents run their own company, you play with office supplies. Well, that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, so we did 
dad all those for making advertisements or my dad had them for doing circuit boards or panel layouts then we did with the rub-on like the letter set rub-ons um and uh so it's becoming clear yes <laughs> where it all came <laughs> it from it all came from <laughs> um but uh but yeah so now though with i mean fonts oh my goodness but there's so many crummy ones i'm really picky so and because of the relative, I mean, relative to computers, the, you're in sort of the analog world, and and so the tools don't change as quickly. Right. Uh, and so you you have a lot of the things that people are trying to actually recapture now with the sort of analog versus digital. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I think it's the role of hipsters to take everything that was analog and turn it into digital and then back again. And, and to go back and forth between and kind of play with it. Well, that seems a, I mean, at least it seems fun. It is, you know? yeah, and I'm, I'm in favor of it. Uh, um, and so, then and people actually making things and doing things, you know, that's always. Well, and, and rescuing things, like I have old reels of tape, it has my band on it, mm -hmm. you know, that, that I haven't listened to in Real a really reel. long time. Yeah, 10 inch reel. Nice. So, um, who knows if I'll ever get, I've, I've get that moved across. I've got the equipment to listen to that. Oh, well, we'll have to make a copy. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe we have some show music, some, uh, <laughs> we make <laughs> intro music right. out of my old band. So, we'll have to digitize it. So, we'll be exactly. going the other way uh, for the podcast because hardly anybody, I think, ships cassette tapes with their podcasts on it. <laughs> that would be analog. We could offer it. That would be weird. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose you could. I, I'm sure there's a service somewhere yeah. that will do that for you. But who would have a cassette deck to listen to? I, I guess know. people with old cars, maybe. Yeah, old cars might need that. But probably not. No. I'm just going to say I that. used to listen to podcasts on uh, on CDs, though. Uh, I, I had a CD player that I put compressed MP3s on it. And so long car okay. trips, I would burn myself a CD with like 10 hours of podcasts right, on it. Because you could cram all that on there. Yeah, and... yeah, and it sat on the seat next to me and, and then had a little FM transmitter into my car. But was was it an FM transmitter? Um, did you have to have something in your cassette deck to receive no, it? No, there was nothing. Okay. No cassette decks were harmed. Okay. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a little transmitter, yeah. I often wondered if anyone else ever heard it as I oh, was driving you... along. <laughs> Um, but I don't think so. It was hard enough to receive in the car. Yeah, we had one it, of those too. It got very far. Yeah, and so that was that was the transition for me until I got an iPhone. Hannah Mula is the company that I found when I was researching um, paper quality parameters. Like, what is it that people look for in paper? Uh, I figured there must be a bunch of words that people use to describe it, because otherwise, how would you sell paper that's expensive, right? You have to have a way to tell people and have like a marketing department that uses lots of words. Yes, and... language and jargon. Yeah, there must be some jargon. And then if you look behind the jargon, there must be some facts in there Precisely. that are interesting that I didn't know or that I had seen but just hadn't put it all together. And so how do you say this? Hannah Mueller? I don't know. I, it's German. It's German, and I don't speak German, and um, I generally read, and so 
pronouncing things sometimes is a challenge. Yeah, I have, a, I have the same problem. And I also have been told that my German is terrible <laughs> by German people whose name I can't pronounce. And they had me practice it for a little while. And I, I said, oh, you got it. And I couldn't detect any difference at all between what I had said. So apparently I speak randomly. Yeah, linguistics well. is... Got to uh, get everything just right. Yeah, I, and I didn't. <laughs> but um, but yeah, like I said, I, I'm I'm familiar with these guys from I bought a, a bit of their um, inkjet papers for doing back in the previous episode. We were talking about the continuous ink systems. Right. When your ink is almost free, you play around with a lot of different papers to figure out what paper looks best for each application. And uh, it was about the time I got married, so we were printing out lots mm. of photos from the wedding. And um, I like they have a lot of really nice, beautiful papers. And my mom does watercolor artwork, and um, they have really nice uh, papers that are that look like watercolor paper, but they're inkjet papers. So you can just print on them, and it looks like one of her watercolors. It's pretty cool. So um, the surface, like even a watercolor paper, is um, there's different, you know, there's like the, the rough kind of a texture that I think you kind of think about when you think of watercolor papers. I think of rough. But they have um, hot press. Those are, sometimes they're hand molded um, or they're um, a cold press. And then they have a hot press process that produces a smoother finish that you paint on. It's not... Quite so, I don't know, cratery. Wrinkle. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's a technical term. Texture. Yeah, texture. Yeah, so it's got less less texture on it. Or surface. Um, also, on the aging of paper, that's always kind of interesting. You know, we're we're taught that the cotton papers, 100% cotton papers, are the archival papers are going to last the longest in storage. Of course, you have to store them around, not around big acid sources. You don't want to put your cotton paper in cardboard boxes, so you have to store them properly. Um, but, but that's like true like for um, artwork. If you're going to frame a watercolor, you want to use acid-free mat boards and backing boards that are, and they're generally um, cotton. So this is this is kind of interesting that you saw about the different um, age resistance. So yeah, the um, I guess the wood pulp is the alternative, uh, and the the more the more fiber and the less wood pulp you have, apparently that makes the more expensive and better paper. Uh, and the uh, I think I don't know what happens if you try to add something to make wood pulp not be acid anymore but i gather it doesn't go as well as if you just start with cotton and and increase the ph i think they say they go between seven and a half and nine and a half ph nine and a half would i don't know would that burn your hands uh that's getting up there um that's a lot of alkaline neutral yeah seven and a half is very close to neutral but nine it's a logarithmic scale so nine and a half is yeah is way more than seven and a half for ph um yeah i i suppose um 
that would be interesting to try to measure some paper pH um, and, and see what there is. I've noticed my old engineering paper has got to be wood pulp because I can see the wood pulp in it. It probably has very little fiber. And I've noticed it's done pretty well, but it's staying in an air-conditioned office. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's quite sensitive to temperature and humidity, right? Because it's the little bugs. I think the problem is it gets moldy, right? Right. Uh, ultimately, it gets moldy. And uh, and then, and I guess the paper is really kind of like sugar. And so the little mold stuff goes into business and eats the sugar. And... And uh, microbes and fungi, uh, and and so it smells. So you get that old book smell, right? Yeah, it's very distinctive. Yeah, yeah, and and it's either good or bad, sort of depending on. There's like good old book smell and yeah, sort of the rotten like old the, book smell. Yeah, the ew smell. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe there are different species that are in there. Different book bugs. But what really bothered me about, about this paper is, is the engineering paper and, and is the transparency, I think, is what gets me. That and the bleed through. So I noticed that... Um, so why does it bother you? What, what about the, the transparency of it? Well, if I have a really dark line on one page and then I have another page on top of it, I can see the page so underneath. that... Yeah, so I'm looking through it, and I start thinking about what's on the other page instead of what I'm trying to do. So I don't like that very much, but on the other hand, it has the ink on the other side, and I'm counting on that ink to be my uh, graph paper lines. So I need some transparency. So I don't know if there's a workable trade-off there, other than just removing the sheet from the pad and not worrying about its transparency or or never looking at it stacked. Right, yeah, you have, or I guess you could... Um put it in a binder and have a solid sheet in between them, but then you're carrying around a lot of extra paper. That's a lot of pages, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have many binders full of engineering paper from old old designs, and I, I met someone who wanted to scan them. I was amazed. It was a corporate librarian. He said, oh, yeah, I'll scan your old notebooks. I was like, really? They have the, you know, like pictures stapled in them and stuff. And she said, oh, that's, that's what makes it interesting. I like the... <laughs> The hard ones, yeah. Um, but we have nice scanners now built into the printer. And so I've scanned a few old old notebooks, and they come out quite well. So who knows? Maybe I won't have, I won't worry about the sort of archivalness and all of those things for much longer, for my drawings anyway, um, because my bookshelves uh, runneth over. And I'm lucky now I have plenty of space for them, but I'm sure in the future that someone else will want to sit where my books are. I have this amazing paper. It's called, it's from Crescent. It's called Render No Show Through Paper. So it really solves the... I would say that sounds like you'd be very happy with that paper. I, I am. And it, I'm so happy with it that I write on both sides. Ooh. Now, it doesn't have any lines on it. Uh, I might be able to run it through the printer. I don't know. Um, That's your homework. It might, yeah, it might, but if it melts, well, I think the way that it works is that it actually has, it's actually two sheets of paper with a sheet of plastic in between. So it's like an eco disaster, um, very hard to work on, uh, to, to recycle. But I think that you could, you could fold it uh, four ways and eat a bowl of soup out of it. 
<laughs> and then unfold it and write on the other yeah, side, and, and it wouldn't have any, it, you, it wouldn't be any bleed through because I think they show examples of people using, um, you know, spray cans and and you know, big heavy markers and all kinds of things on it, and it just doesn't bleed through. It's amazing paper, and it comes with a really stiff board, so it's a pad of paper. It has a very stiff board on it, so it's really nice for writing on it. I like it particularly on something like an airplane or a place where I don't have a desk because it's kind of a built-in desk. Right. Uh, it's stiff enough that yes. you can work on it and you feel supported and it feels really good. Yeah, it's a nice thick and rigid backing. And this is it's also nice that it has the, uh, the cover on it, so it seems almost like a notebook but you can remove your pages. Yeah, you can take the pages out and then you can put them back under the uh, yeah. cover and they, they stay there. So yeah, it's like a, like a file yeah. folder. Yeah. It's, it's like having a folder with all your stuff on it. And, and I use it when I travel also because it packs well because it's not going to get bent uh, easily. Yeah, I've only seen this in the um, bound books. They have this same, like in a like an eight and a half, eleven, or a couple of other sizes, a little smaller size. Um, but I didn't see these large pads yet, so the pads cool. are great. Yeah, and they make bigger ones and smaller ones uh, of the pads. This one is huge. This is um, eleven by fourteen. I should learn the A sizes. Is that an A size, eleven by fourteen? Is that an A four or something like that? You I don't know, know. We'll have I, to figure it out. I don't think it is. I think that's from. Uh, I was just remember that only talked about with photographs. Oh, okay. Scales I think my, it's European paper. From my also. old uh, picture framing days. Oh, okay. So. I think there's, I think they talk about them in metric, but I think they're funny numbers. They're probably soft metric. Yeah, there's a, uh, yeah. And then, yeah, the paper sizes are definitely something that I should learn. I should learn. We should learn. We should learn about paper sizes? <laughs> yes. Why is that? Um, well, especially if you're shopping for paper, you know, um, sometimes they only tell you the size, the A size. And if you don't know what that is, and the picture is just of like a little notebook, and you think it's a little notebook, it's not. We so. could have like a little a little app that, that, <laughs> that you have on your phone that, that shows you the paper sizes. Right. But how would, let's see, it would need a ruler of some sort, too. We'd have to work this out. Uh, I have to get a, a UX designer on it. Exactly. Uh, but I think that uh, I think that we could do that. Or we could have a little table in the show notes that had... That would be useful. That had the paper sizes in it. Okay. So paper sizes table. Well, I can show you my engineering web design chops by making a table of paper sizes because there is a particular JavaScript library that I like that makes tables for the web and it's called datatable.js and what it does is you send it some JSON data which is a nice friendly little format for data and you call a JavaScript function with this data in it and it makes a beautifully formatted table uh, and it has the little sort buttons in it so you can you know like do ascending or descending oh, right. for all the columns and you can alternate the rows with the colors. That's, that's always nice, especially on either long tables or wide tables. You know, you can get lost on those. 
and it has a variable number of uh, uh, cells or rows per page. So you can either put like all the rows in one massive table and give it a scroll bar mm -hmm. or make it any size you want. Or you can uh, let the user set it so the user can choose, you know, 25 or 50 or 100 rows or whatever, and they can scroll if they want to. And then I like to add buttons for it that export the data. Uh, you can export it to the clipboard or to a spreadsheet XLSX format or to PDF. All the file formats you can think of, CSV, CSV and uh, file basically or... every, everything, all the nice things. Uh, for exporting text Lovely. and it's a, it's an amazing code and I it, it's changed my whole idea about web design because well web designers really don't like tables because in the beginning of the web everything was formatted with tables that's how people did layout well you but you're supposed to put tabular data data in yeah. tables the sort of people not liking tables got so intense they didn't even like it for tabular data. They got they were so dogmatic about it. And I and doing engineering web pages a lot, I have almost all tabular data. Yeah. And so people would make me feel bad about using tables. What what, what would they have you do to present your tabular data? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I guess I was supposed to use CSS uh, and make maybe CSS tables. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's in effect, I think, what this is is that. You can have these beautiful design tables with, um, you know, themes on them so that you change it in one spot and and everything about your table changes. Or, or also that it's uh, responsive so that when you look at it on different devices, the table sort of tries to do the right thing. That's handy. It is very nice, yes. Uh, and, and so datatables.js, highly recommended. I think we should do a brief review of some of the things we talked about in the last episode. Oh, follow-up. Yeah. Okay. Follow-up is always good, right? Yes, let's follow up. So you brought some pencils by today. I did. Some I brought colored, colored pencils. pencils. I brought two kinds of colored pencils. Oh, I only saw one. Oh, well, I should get the <laughs> others. You saw the Lyra from Germany, the Waldorf Selection. And I got these from Kimberly, uh, who has quite a stock of uh, colored pencils. We're ha we'll have her on the show at some point. And these colored pencils are triangular and quite large. They say Super Furby on them. They're jumbos. For sure. Yeah, they're, they're big jumbo, you know, kindergarten. I mean, I guess they're intended for children. Yeah, I think they are, or in this case, for me, because they fit my hand just right, especially <laughs> with my non-standard pencil grip. They're just perfect uh, for for holding, and they're very creamy. You, you can't see through them. What is that called where paper doesn't show through where you've drawn? Their opacity? Or? Yeah, opacity is very good. They're amazing that way, and, and the material flows right off. What I don't know how to do is sharpen them. A knife. A knife, huh? Yeah, because I don't think it's going to go in my uh, pointomatic. It's not going to fit in, I guarantee it. It's <laughs> yeah. fit in your Panasonic. <laughs> this is when you have to break out the knife. A knife, yeah. I, I don't like sharpening with a knife. I'm going to have to buy something now. You can, you, can get a, you can get a little, you know, the little tiny hand sharpeners. You can I think that's what I mean. Yeah. This one's 6.25 millimeters. 
sort of claims on the package. 6.25 millimeter. Yeah. That's a lot like quarter of an inch. <laughs> it's pretty, I don't know, let's, I'm trying to look at how they're even measuring that, I guess. I think that's the size of the core. Is that the size of the core? And that looks like the size. Oh, maybe that is just the core. Yeah, that is. Yeah, because the pencil is even larger. It's, it looks much bigger than that, yeah. Yeah, the core is huge. And so it has a lot of... Uh, there, uh, I can sort of defer this problem with sharpening. Right. Because the core is so large that it's going to take a while to get all the way down to the wood. And my drawings will just get thicker and thicker until I get there. I'll just, I'll just do background. Yeah. But then I won't be able to write on top of them. And that's actually another interesting thing is how well you, a colored pencil can write on top of another colored pencil. Oh, yeah, that really is um, blocking out the color pretty well. And unlike a, a pen where, like, if you take a highlighter or something and you go over wet ink on it and you contaminate your highlighter and it's never the same, with a colored pencil you can just sharpen it. That's right. And the, the whole problem of the little flecks goes away. But it does, it's not picking up the little flecks. It's, yeah. it's doing very well. It's still just leaving material. It's not picking any up. So I'm very happy with these. So this now you can make your drawings and make your colored keys. And yeah, if I want to be really bold, this is perfect. Well, if you use this big pad of paper. If I use, if yes. It, if, render, then if I use the render no show through paper, then I can make some really killer drawings with this. It'll look kind of like refrigerator art. Well, you can always, <laughs> you know, scale it down when you scan it. That's so, a good point. Yeah, and then it, then it would look like I had good handwriting. It, everything looks better when you reduce it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea. And I like that it's uh, it's the sort of children's aspect to it I find quite charming. I like yeah. the Super Furby, and it says Waldorf selection, although it was pointed out that a true Waldorf selection would not have brown or black. And this has both of those in it. Um, I think they're cedar, and they don't—they don't don't appear to have any finish on them, so they're easy to. They smell delicious. Yeah, so I think cedar. that's the cedary. But it has a the grip is pretty nice because it's not lacquered. You know. Oh right, the dry wood. Yeah. Kind of nice. I mean, if it is a, if there is any finish, it's scant. But I don't I don't think there is. Yeah, it's like just wood. Yeah. I mean, I think the difference in color from where it sharpened is just oxidization of the wood and then Could the fresh be. exposed wood. Maybe just a little bit of a stain on it, yeah, a very it's, light stain. It's light. Yeah, just a tiny layer. Maybe just enough to get the, uh, well, I guess the ink they have on it, marking it. It's got very nice colors here. This one is real blue. And... The, they have different color ink for the, on the different colored pencils. I think all these markings are hot stamped on there too, so they because there's if you rub on them, they have some. So the depth. for example, the blue pencil has blue ink on it, and this uh, purple pencil here has red ink on it. It's not quite purple, I think, yeah, or it's maybe red. a magenta. It's headed a little bit towards purple, and then. The red is definitely a brighter red, almost orangey. So they've done a really nice job. I, I really like the graphics on it. It's um, And it's got the part number on there for the individual pencils, not just the set, but the numbers, which is nice. So in case you want to get more. The Lyric colored pencils have 
worked out great. And I just got these and I want to figure out how to sharpen them and I really like them. And I also have the Tombow pencils and I got the primary set, mm -hmm. which is what I wanted. And they work great. They're very creamy and they lay down a lot of color and they had the colors I wanted in a nice set without a whole lot, without having to buy a whole lot of colors that I didn't want. Yeah, they've been really smart with their packaging of their colored pencils where you can really get a, a complete set that you're after but not having to buy like hundreds of pencils to get every color you want if you want them all. I would say they have, they have good taste. Yes. And by that I mean their taste agrees with mine. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to know what I was looking for, which is that I need to add you know, extreme splashes of color to an otherwise colorless document. Because otherwise it looks too busy. Because if you do everything in black, then you just get a jumble of black. But you have to mind, you have to use restraint with your colors in your documents. Because if there's too much, then you have almost like the dazzle camouflage effect where you don't know where to look because there's too many choices. Hmm. Yeah, if you, if you just... If in, and especially, well, this is this goes for the mad highlighting people. Like everything is important and highlighted, and three or four different colors of highlighter. You just don't. What, what are you trying to tell me? It's, it's not really communicating well. Um, so, if you're using like three or four colors in addition to black, you'll probably not have too many, but. The fewer you can, the fewer colors you can use to communicate what you want, usually the better. It's quicker to, quicker for someone else to learn what you're trying to tell them. Yeah, mostly I need one. Right. <laughs> uh, one more, that is, and sometimes two. What I have is drawings, and then I have different kinds of things on it to name, and their names are written next to the things, but they're different types of things, and. The drawings tend to get crowded, and if you have a bunch of names and you can't tell, is this about, well, in this case, it's electrical components and wires. So is this piece of text about a component, or is it about a wire? And so I use different colors uh, for the information about wires, which is the name of the wire, mm -hmm. versus the information about the components, which is the name of the component. Uh, now, all the components have names, and so that gets the black. Uh, whereas only some of the wires have names, so they get a, a little highlight. Right. Gosh, quite tidy that way. It works. It works quite well. And what I do is I circle the color names also, and that that way, if I have a black and white copy, oh yeah, uh, I can. <laughs> I still stand a chance. Right. Um, so always change two things. I think that's that's the key. So when you it helps, I think when you change the color of something to change something else. And if you have too many colors, it would get hard to change. Exactly. Because yeah, yeah. you don't have that many things you can change. As you could change your, what do you call it? What's a font when you're printing? What What do you call that? Um, Is that a hand? A hand, yeah. A hand, you, could change, you hand. could change your hand. You could write oblique. I mean, there is italic cursive, um, but you know, there's. Oblique. Yeah, I should I should go oblique more often. I've done that on occasion. Um, yeah, I should make more use of oblique text in color. That would look pretty cool. 
I could I could use another I could use these Tombow pencils and and write in some oblique hand um, to do some of the other annotation and that might look really cool actually. You want to make them look super cool? You have to pull out your old Leroy lettering guides. I have one. <laughs> That's those always look really cool. I don't know how to use it. I've never used it. I admired it in the box. Okay. Bring it. We'll have a do a Leroy off. I I have it. It has some. I think it needs ink. Um, I guess I guess yeah, the standard way. But I I know my dad had his rigged up with his pencil. Mm. <laughs> so really, uh, well I'll have to learn that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I need that. I think I have the Gothic set, okay. Leroy set. I think I only have one. Are there more? There's more. Yeah, I'm sure there are. <laughs> eBay. eBay, yeah. I'm sure you can find them there. There's slide rules. and. Yeah, I have a whole bunch of slide rules, too. I have the, I have a full set of analog tools for engineering. And some old notebooks that haven't been written in. I have some old civil engineering mm. notebooks that look like they were swag from um, some sort of civil engineering company. Uh, so I have these blank notebooks that are truly field notes in the sense that they are really for fields. They're, they're for getting dirty um, and laying sewer pipe, um, <laughs> which was the, the business at hand at the time. It was um, the Georgia Clay Pipe Company, I believe. Um, so that, that sounds good. So is there other, what, what is our other, do we have other follow-up? We have another follow-up. It's a, a brief one. You had brought over some paper samples I from did. Stone yes. and Burn. And, right. Um, all I did was write a little bit with a couple of fountain pens on them, and they all did really well. Check it out. There's like no, they don't feather. Even the, even the ones that have a pretty decent texture on them. It almost looks like a, yeah. Yeah, that looks great. And and, yeah. and the feedback with the and this is with the a flex nib pen on all the black ones and they um it wasn't grabby. So it was it was really fun to write on. I mean I, I, I think they're intended as art papers, mixed media. So ink counts. Um but yeah, they look really they'll be fun and uh I'm going to try out some uh, watercolor samples on them next. So that sounds great. Just keep building on that. But yeah, this, these were, these are really fun. And I like, I like that you can get them in uh, soft cover books or hard cover books or spiral because all those for different applications are handy. Okay. I have, I have another piece of follow-up. Mm -hmm. Would you ever drink your ink? Would I ever drink my ink? Yeah. Um, I, I, maybe if I was thirsty, I don't know. <laughs> well, we um, talked about methylene blue, and we wondered if it would make oh. good ink. And it's come to my attention that some people are self-medicating with methylene blue. Really? Which is something I do not recommend. I think that you should seek medical advice if you're well before you take it upon yourself uh, to think that methylene blue is a smart drug. Okay. Yeah, so uh, don't drink methylene blue without advice from a physician. And uh, it is amazing uh, 
uh, what the claims are for methylene blue, and it'll it'll cure what ails you, um, and it will also uh, turn things blue. So <laughs> you gotta you know even though it, you can imagine it would be really cool to turn blue until you do. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like a whole body, well, it wouldn't be permanent, so it wouldn't be a whole body tattoo. Okay. You really don't want to turn blue, please. Uh, I don't want to have to look at that. Uh, so don't drink the ink, and don't drink methylene blue. But I see you have a very nice purple here in a Caveco EF. Caveco, is that what that is? Kaveco? I guess. It's German, so is, is you that... probably say Caveco. Of okay. Course. Is I'm, that a fountain American, pen? Yeah. I just say Coeco. Coeco. Oh, oh, know. okay. All right. That's a W. But it's... I'm reading cursive, and I'm not good at that. Yeah, but it's German, so you probably are pronouncing it correctly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's extra fine nib, and this other ones are the are fine nib, but flex. Boom. So. The flex know. nib. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, I'm glad that that paper worked out. I'll have to leave you with some of this um, render paper as well, this crescent no-show-through paper, and see if you want to uh, use it for drawing or cooking. Right. Because I think it'll work for both, except that I think it has plastic in it, and I don't know that it's um, suitable for consumption right. um, for food use. I don't think it's food-grade um, paper. Um, not that I would know it if, is there such a thing? Food grade paper? Well, they, there must be. I mean, yeah. you have it for butcher paper, butcher right? paper and, and wax paper yeah. and all of that. Parchment, cooking parchment. Oh, right. There's parchment paper, high temperature paper. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually interesting paper. It is. Sometimes it has silicone on it too. Hmm. Food grade silicone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, silicone is, people keep trying to think of why it, why it's bad for you because, you know, it comes off the pan and then you have like Teflon or whatever in your in your mm -hmm. scrambled eggs and people don't want to have that. But nobody's been able to detect any health effects from that. Apparently, it's okay to eat Teflon in your scrambled eggs. Apparently, it slides right through, I guess. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so far anyway. I use that... Um silicone-coated parchment in my laser printer um, to make transfers before. How does so, that work? Well, the toner just sits on top of it, and it's pretty easy to release it with uh, solvent. Um, so you, so like when we do engraving on Mother of Pearl, you can paint your solvent on your pearl and put your image that's printed in reverse um, in toner on this paper that it'll release from and get it on there and burnish it down a little bit and it just transfers over. So it burnish okay. it down. So it's some sort of rub-on technique. Yeah, Is there would, a tool exactly, for that? You would use a rub-on like like a bone folder probably or there's like a pla you can get plastic ones too. Ah, a little a little spatula like thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, nice and smooth edges so you don't tear things. And what so, what would be a, an example of a good solvent? Acetone. Ooh, nasty one. Well, it's I think it's pretty much the only one you can use commercially in California. Oh, so. okay. That's an okay <laughs> it's, one. It's huh? the one. <laughs> oh, all right. You have your choice of acetone. Yeah. Well, I've seen MEK, but that's probably even worse. I've seen it in hardware stores, but yeah. I don't know if you can use it. 
Yeah, I, th I, I mean, at least at least I know our permit lets us use acetone. Okay, so well, acetone it is. Paint. And I think that's mostly for painting. But since we have it, that's what we use. It's also a good high explosive if you need one. Uh, it's very flammable, so take care with the acetone. Um, particularly if you're in a pure oxygen environment. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will ask you later. Uh, but it involves blowing up an entire laboratory of glassware and shattering every piece, uh, which I did not do, but a friend of the family did. And, um, and he then learned glass blowing to replace it all. And later, that, later in life, that became a key, uh, key success for him. Um, Is this laboratory glass blowing? Lab glass blowing, yeah. He, he got good at glass blowing from rebuilding a, an entire lab that he had exploded with acetone. Uh, so, yeah, no fire. No open flames yeah. with acetone. But you can take the acetone and you get the parchment paper wet with it. So you, you print it with the laser printer and... And the toner is sticking pretty well. It's not just falling right it off, so it fuses well. on I mean, there. Because it's a plastic. The toner is basically a yeah, plastic. Yeah, the toner fuses kind of to itself, and it's and it sits on it well enough. As long as you don't, um, as long as your paper doesn't wrinkle through the paper path, because if it gets a wrinkle in it, it there's nothing supporting it underneath. So you have to. Sometimes I usually would right. tape, tape it to a carrier sheet, actually, you know, put tape all along the leading edge so that something stiff was behind it because it's a little flimsy. Um, but it works, it works really well for making transfers. Okay. And, and so you, you run the parchment through and it comes out and it has this, it has the toner on it that's been fused and it's kind of fragile and sitting on the top. And then you put the acetone on the workpiece, and then you lay the parchment paper over it and rub transfer. Mm -hmm. And you and then what about the peeling it back um, operation? Is yeah. that like a real touch thing? Or? Usually, I just let it dry oh. in place, and then it's it just releases itself. So it makes like a better point. it makes a better contact to the workpiece than the parchment mm -hmm. paper because the parchment paper has a weaker it's particularly weak because of the silicone yeah, layer it's, it's on it. It's got silicone on it, but it, it, um, it's able to, and then it's able to have, the toner holds on to, you know, melting it a little bit with the acetone, um, holds on to the workpiece well enough that we can use an engraver um, and not just have it pop off. So, and you can, and you can also um, take like a, um, a clear acrylic paint over the top of it, if you're going to be handling the piece a lot, just a, a, a light coat of varnish or, or clear paint, and that'll kind of encapsulate it, sort of. And then when you're when you're running along the long lines, they won't pop up. But um, otherwise, your other choice is drawing on the piece directly, um, or not drawing at all and just free reform engraving but there's no eraser so and then i guess the one i i see a lot is the carbon paper yeah yeah you can you can do that too 
but that implies that you can sort of freehand that you can draw in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you can trace, maybe. Yeah, trace yeah. So I, I, I see that, and, and I've done that a few times, but I'm usually disappointed because it seems difficult to maintain the registration mm. uh, because you have maybe your piece of carbon paper, and then you've got a layer of paper that has your artwork on it, and and you're pressing on that, and by the time you know, all, to hold all of those pieces. You need that drafting tape. Yeah, you got to have a which, drafting table. And and so you need a really flat. Everything needs to be really flat um, to to get it to go. Otherwise, it's sort of uh, you know when you press on one spot, it pulls it around because it didn't quite get flat. Yeah, that and it's not. Yeah, paper is pretty flat, right? It's if you have a surface that's sort of not really flat. It's hard to make paper really happy about that while yeah. it's sitting on it. Um, yeah. The stretchability. I guess that's another that's another characteristic of paper, right? Is how much does it stretch, and what's its strength? So, so this is this uh, stress strain relationship. I think in mechanical engineering is the idea. Um, you know, if you pull on it and it, and it does it deflect a little bit or, or does it just tear, um, you know, sort of what happens with it. Um, and I, I think the parchment paper, that's probably, it's probably actually pretty good for that. It doesn't seem like it's biting you very much. It no. doesn't have a lot of... Um, I think it's a really short grain paper, just removing right. it. It's very limp. And like I said, that's why I have to put it on a carrier sheet just because I think it would just wad up if I put it straight into my aggressive ancient HP laser printer. Yeah, one day I came into work and all the printers were broken. I think what happened was somebody was doing some sort of art project and they put something that broke the pinch rollers Okay. in, in one. It was like, oh, that didn't work. So they went to another printer and tried it there. Yeah. And they, I think they visited all the printers. Yeah, I destroyed a printer with um, uh, their cards, like watercolor cards, but they were supposed to be for inkjet. But um, there's like a powdery residue on all the paper, and it just choked up the uh, the grab, the first grab roller. So it didn't have any didn't have any grab left. It was powder coated and oh, the the grit wheel. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's a... it had it had nothing to grab onto, and I couldn't. I I tried really hard to rehabilitate that machine, um, but no, they're never, never the same. I could never <laughs> get it to recover. That was that went to uh, that went went to a better place. Old printers are a great source of raw materials. <laughs> uh, I think of it as a mining operation. Because they sell the printers so cheaply, hoping that you'll buy the supplies. That they're basically giving you a nice set of motors and very accurate steel rods and rollers and yeah. gears. And Bill has harvested pretty much everything, uh, Bill, my husband, from, from these uh, old printers that were in the barn, um, thinking I was going to repair another printer with it. <laughs> He's taken them all apart and harvested the motors and parts for his uh, robotics class. That's that's so. where they come from. <laughs> they're really nice motors for that because they're making little robots that print things. 
you know, the, the, we already own, we already all have robots. They, we call them printers. <laughs> uh, and they, they grab things and, and move things and very patiently uh, do all sorts of operations that people used to do. Thanks for listening. This is the end of another episode of Function. Visit our website to find show notes and see pictures of what we talked about.